Welcome everybody to the Uncensored CMO. Now it may surprise some of you to discover that actually behind it all I'm actually something of a closet numbers guy. Yes that's right you've heard it. I did a degree in economics and finance and even majored in econometrics in my final year which I can only imagine you all shouting (laughs) at the moment wondering what on earth I was thinking of at the time. But you know strangely it's actually come in quite useful in my career. Turns out there's a lot more numbers and economics in marketing than perhaps uh, meets the eye. It's not all shiny new packaging and glitzy ads produced in South Africa. And actually we are in the business of driving results as well as obviously making our brand famous. So on that note, who better to have on my podcast than the queen herself of data, Dr. Grace Kite from Magic Numbers. She has perfected the art of making complex situations simple, putting people at the heart of data and pointing to the evidence of what actually works which um, you know the more I see of my social media feed the more I believe is what we need right now we cover so many things in this episode why on earth you should have an econometric study in the first place the right and wrongs of the long and the short of it and why it depends might just be the best answer to most questions because of course it's not as simple as having one chart to answer them all we talk a lot as well about search what you can find out about search and whether share of search is actually a good proxy for your market share and can predict demands it won't surprise you to find out that also depends you'll uh, also find out why grace refused to consider the color blue as part of her branding um, and also indeed why i decided to make mine yellow but anyway more of that to come let's get on with the show this is dr grace kite so listen t- tell us about yourself and and how on earth did you end up being an econometrician and what does it mean hi yes thanks for having me i'm so pleased to be here econometrics i'm going to start with what is it for because mm. it's for understanding how the decisions you make as a marketer and as a business person in fact affect sales revenue and profit And the funny thing is that's something that most marketers working in complex businesses just don't always know. And it's because there's so many moving parts and and the outside world intrudes. And so people say, oh, we did a TV campaign, but we we didn't see any bump in sales. And we think it's because there was a competitor promo on or something like that. And they've done that campaign. Everybody loved the creative. The copy testing could be system one looked good and it aired in the right place and time. But there's just no visible bump in sales and everyone suspects the competitor promo sold that stole the sales bump. But you just need to be sure. So Econometrics, as it's used in marketing, is there to untangle the effect of media for the TV, in this case, from other things that are going on so that you can see what does what, really. And presumably that helps because obviously in big organisations, you often get kind of myths established don't you or or people have got agendas in terms of I must prove that this has worked sort of thing so presumably econometrics is a good way of sorting out what actually happens and what you can attribute to your marketing versus what you might choose to say very often Is, is that often are you often brought in as the honest person in the party to look objectively at the data and try and understand what it's telling you. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a couple of things to kind of unpack there because yes, we do get brought in to sort out some debates that are going on and get answers to them. And, and econometrics can move organisations and the marketing departments on when they're stuck on a particular issue and they can't get to resolution on it. But the funny thing is that econometrics on its own and any analysis on its own is not going to resolve a person's situation or a person's point of view because it is only a piece of analysis and one of the things we know from doing it for years and we've done research with CMOs to say what's your experience of this is that actually the the analytics itself is step one but there's a whole piece around it which is actually getting to a point where it can be used and it will be accepted so the classic thing that can happen is you do a piece of econometrics and it shows say the out of home isn't working that well but then the person who's in charge of the out of home budget goes I don't really understand this econometrics. I don't know what it is. I've got this other piece of evidence over here that my mum's gram drove past it. She said it was great or or something else, you know, that that, that they've got another piece of evidence. And and they just go, I don't think we'll implement this recommendation. We'll carry on doing out of home just because it could be a bit, you know, risky to, to cut it next year. And so nothing changes. And that person seems really reasonable, don't they? It doesn't sound. And then other people in the business who know that person don't want to upset them and nothing changes. And so actually getting from analytics work to real change in marketing budgets Mm. to real progress in marketing being an engine for growth is actually, it's a people task. 
it's not an analytics task and and, and that's a really important part of it I think. That is a really interesting insight because actually it, it takes quite a lot of humility to say here's all our data here's the good and the bad here's what happened and with no agenda or reflection on how good a job anyone's had done individually, go and tell us what's working and what's not working or why it's working or not working. Mm. And, and I think organisations are so full of agenda and politics and stuff like that. And, and that's I'd never thought about it like that, actually. But I think now you've said that, I can really see why managing the people and the context and why the question's being asked and what the implications might be actually is probably quite an art form. It, it's, I think not everybody does it really well in the econometrics industry and marketing those that do it well get in and talk to the stakeholders early and anyone that's got to use this research is going to be talked to in the beginning and you're going to catch what their agendas are and what their prejudices are and what their beliefs are and also the nuances of the story because it may be that they believe something um and actually, it's not readily visible in the data just because something else was going on and, and they can tell you that story. And you can um, bake it in and maybe you can find the out of home working working well because there's something they knew that they then told you and you can bake into the model. So it's about talking to people is about getting the modelling right. It's about but it's about bringing them on the journey and, and, and making sure that when you get to the other end that you've got something they'll recognise. Not just the marketing department, I- by the way. The pricing people and the, the distribution people and the website people. And it's interesting what you're saying in terms of what your hypothesis might be or, or what the existing belief is. And it's funny, actually, even this week, of course, we've had the whole story about Cristiano Ronaldo kicking the, the Coke bottle out the room. And I've seen so many stories, even on TV networks, going, Coke lost $4 billion based on Cristiano Ronaldo knocking a Coke bottle. And of course, the market capitalization move had nothing whatsoever <laughs> to do and in fact somebody posted on LinkedIn earlier they just literally said look it was this time that the stock price went down it was 15 hours later that happened it had no impact whatsoever but people have just correlated those two things together it within probably seconds or hours it's become a case study in influence of marketing that is suddenly bearing everywhere we're talking about it on news channels it's not true that's not what the data tells you yeah yeah <laughs> you know? a case in point we, we see like things like that day in day out obviously not Cristiano Ronaldo no. I was good well I, 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 <laughs> we'll get you to we'll get you two in touch yeah. it'd be nice wouldn't it have you ever had to, so have you ever had to really burst a bubble or really explode a few myths in, in, in an organization and has that been a challenge having a quite an honest where maybe the organization believe one thing and the data is telling you something else yeah yeah, absolutely. And we have two two types of projects in terms of when it gets to the debrief. And, and sometimes the, the strategy is working and you're giving the marketing team a bit of a pat on the back by saying, look, this works. But sometimes you're, you are saying that something, that something that's been done is not right. And, and again, you have to be really very sensitive about that because with this, you're good at your job, you work hard at your job and you want to do it well. And everybody's like that. Everybody in every marketing department I've ever met is trying to do the right thing and they work hard. And one thing that's that, that econometrics and any evaluation can do is come in and, and say, hang on, you were working the hunt not really panning out. One of the things that we found in our research with CMOs and was that actually sometimes results of evaluation can make people feel really bad really upsetting Mm. really disheartening can damage people's careers and if somebody's running a reasonable reasonably sized budget in one media channel and that gets cut that is a big upset to their career path and the only way to really handle it and, and, and to do it the best you can is to make sure that person at least hears it in a room where there's not 20 people and their boss might not be there and and they get a chance to tell their side of the story and they know it's coming so we do really prioritize trying our best to make people not feel bad and not feel stupid (laughs) but to learn from it and and to be positive about what the next steps are and presumably very often when, when you're working with clients there's a reason obviously they've asked you to come in so presumably you're often responding to a big question that they've got or, or, or a big review or something like that. Presumably that must help, does it? And part of the reason they're probably bringing you in is to give an objective, as well as doing the clever stuff you do with the data, the fact that you're not in the company, you're not obliged to make so-and-so look good or so-and-so look bad. Presumably that's one part of it, isn't it? Having that objectivity. Yeah, we, we are one of the few 
really independent shops now. There aren't that many that are really separate from the big media conglomerates. And so that is part of what people buy. But you're right that somebody quite senior is bringing you in to do this job. And again, it's a people role. So I'm coming back to this over and over, but it's so important. That senior person, that highest paid person that said, I need this project, they have to be brought through the process as well. Mm. So that when it comes to the other end and, and there might be a difficult answer that person has to be there to help how it's delivered shall we mm. say and actually e- e- even you're probably going to have to coach that person to make sure they're thinking about it as well because when, when you're juggling so many projects as a client and you're just rushing to tell me the answer I want to know the answer and then you realize I've been in these situations where you sat in the room and thought ah yeah so my head of marketing that did that campaign is probably not going to feel great right now or, or, or the, the pricing manager that convinced us to do that as so I think it's the trust isn't it you need to build that trust with a team to really be able to accept what the data is telling you and, and take responsibility for it there, there are econometric shops out there if you're used to having a lot of econometrics and you just want it you want the handle cranked and results to appear on your desk there are people out there that will do that but I guess for us it's not that it's really getting to know people and having those relationships to the point that actually some of our past clients are actually really good friends and mm. and just they'll call us up even to, to talk about things that are not we're out of scope but they know we know their business because we've spent time with them and they'll ask questions and And, like it and i think that's quite powerful if you compare to the classic management consultants that come in the mckinsey's and the baines that almost come in with us a very set way of doing things and very much this is the right answer and we're going to impose it upon you sort of thing it can feel quite you know quite scary and that at the end of this process am i out of a job or not can we just clear this up at the beginning we're not talking we're not talking about cost cutting but we really are we're talking about performance not efficiency savings but you are you know it's uh, everyone's seen everyone's seen this play before haven't they i i Mm -hmm. I love your people i think the other thing i found looking at what you do and, and checking out your new website as well was how and don't take this wrong way but how easy it was to understand now i say that because of course in marketing whenever you mention we're going to do the econometrics everyone glazes over and gets a bit scared going oh, this is, yeah, i'm not going to understand this but actually what i thought you'd put a lot of effort into on your website was really simplifying the concepts and also i saw this in some of the reports you published as well and, and i think that's an art form isn't it taking what might appear to be a level of complexity and and helping people understand it and is that a large part of what you do is transitioning from what is can often feel onerous and complex data and putting it into a simple format for people. Yeah, I agree with you that marketing people, when they hear the word econometrics, glaze over and shrink into themselves. And I just want to change that. I don't want that to be the case. I want people to hear... I want people to be like, oh, it's the econometrics results yeah, this week. Yeah. We, we're going to know how to do things better next year. We're going to really get better at our jobs and we're going to really sell some more of this or whatever it is. And I want there to be some excitement in it and some progress and the joy of working with good people. And that, oh, that's, our, that's what we want it to be. And that's what it feels like to us. We, there was a, a really funny moment in the development of our new brand when Tom, who was doing the work on it, Tom Roach, said, and he'd gone through, he'd talked to me about projects and he'd gone through what our clients have said about us and the testimonials. And he said, everybody else makes econometrics feel like maths on a Monday morning, (laughs) but you make it feel like art on a Friday afternoon. And we all thought, we thought that's great, but actually we all love maths on a Monday morning. (laughs) That's where we want to get to really. Yeah. So you're presenting to all the artists on a Friday afternoon. That's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> so. Yeah, it is. I think the opportunity for, for marketers, and actually I remember, do you know, I, there are certain things that really stick out, aren't they, as, as you go, little moments in your career that you just don't forget. And one of them for me was, obviously, as I said in my intro, I did economics and business at, at a university and was very much a numbers guy, which is quite ironic now. But anyway, so I, I, in fact, it's in my first proper job. I, I was literally the numbers guy. That I was the analyst in the company sort of thing and had access to all the data and did all the reports. And um, I applied for my first job in brand marketing and I didn't get it. And the feedback was I was too much of a data geek and not creative enough, which I now find a bit ironic given the amount of creativity I've done in my career since then. I think I've just been on a constant journey of proving them wrong. I think that's probably what it is. I will prove you wrong. Anyway, but I just, I never forgot that feedback because I remember trying to, in the feedback, saying, isn't it good that actually I understand business and I understand a PL and understand what drives, you know, the financial measures and so on. And actually, I found throughout my career, 
actually having more financial acumen and more comfort with the data has actually been a bit of a superpower actually because it gives you a level of credibility and this is what i think perhaps when as you you know as maybe i described it you get the glazed look from the marketing department who love doing the creative and then you go econometrics and they're literally shaking in their boots sort of thing if they could see it the other way around and go, how much credibility am I going to get in the organization? Imagine turning up to the meeting and you're the brand manager on your brand to go, yeah, we've run the econometrics on this question. And the answer is this. I promise you the entire room would go, just accept what you say. They just go, wow. Rather than going, oh yeah, the agency have come up with this new idea and it's really cool, isn't it? And everyone's going, oh yeah, typical marketing. And this is one of the reasons I was keen to have you on as well. I, I, I think that as marketers, we've got to realise the impacts that we have on the business, not just the brand. Because obviously, obviously, it's exciting to be building the brand and doing the things that do that. But ultimately, it's about delivering results. And econometrics is a key part of that. It's a key in bit of feedback that that we get back that allows us to become better. So, it should be embraced. Yeah, totally agree. And over the period of my career 1999 I got my first job in 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 marketing we have actually seen that transition that actually in those days when econometrics was fairly new there was just everything was like marketing is just a fluffy department and and there was no one that kind of really said yeah we know it drives the business and now it it is accepted I think much more as a, as an engine of growth and one that can be put alongside other investments in the board meeting that the CFO is chairing exactly and of course the CFO is has got the hands on the the money bags so it's the CFO needs to be every CMO's best friend really and, but they talk different languages and I think what's lovely about what you do is you you empower the marketing department to go and and, and have that rational conversation with the chief finance officer and talk about investment rather than cost and return rather than spend and that sort of thing which i think is really important um i was going to ask you a little bit about economics and behavioral science as well i I was trying to work this one out in my head because i remember my very first economics lecture at university i remember literally day one sat there and and i think we were talking about marginal cost and i remember my teacher the professor at the time was trying to explain marginal cost to me and he said to me it's a bit like this john not john he wasn't talking to me personally but talking to the audience but anyway he said yeah i went on a holiday uh, last week with my friend and we decided to both go and share a holiday so they were sharing a campsite and all this kind of thing and he said to me i'm willing to pay the marginal cost of the holiday so you're going to go on the holiday anyway and i will pay the extra expense or the extra fuel or the extra food that we take sort of thing i think that's only fair anyway he said to us what did we think of, of that and i said i assume you don't no longer have him as a friend because <laughs> I, I i'm like I, I thought geez can you imagine saying to your friend i'm going to come on your holiday and i'm going to pay the marginal cost is the difference between you going on your own and you going with me rather than let's split this and let's both win anyway but the reason for saying that story because it just stuck it, it struck me as economics is a very very rational thing isn't it and of course in behavioral science what we now understand is that human beings don't always act in a rational way how how does that come through in the data are you looking at the output of what people do or is there any sort of i guess on what i'm going to get to is it all logical or do you find in what you do that there are some unanswered things that because we're strangers human and act on emotion rather than rational but actually you can't always answer it in a straightforward way i think one thing to say about that really is that about that story it's a good anecdote I like it I I did a bit of lecturing myself so you do try and put concepts for students in in terms they'll they'll understand the real practice of economics economists outside of university do really different things to to what actually you think they're going to do from when you're doing your economics degree most economics degrees are nearly all about theory And there's this one corner of it that's econometrics that's about data. But economists working in the real world are looking at data all day long. That's what they do. And it's because for me, and economics means different things to different people, but for me, economics, and especially micro, I guess the study Mm. of consumers and businesses, it's about patterns of behaviour and it's really about patterns of behaviour of people. So if it's if the price goes up, we'd expect people to buy less of it. That's a pattern of behaviour of people. And most of the data that, that economists are going to be looking at are data about people or businesses that depend on people or maybe groups of people that make up a country. And I guess for me, economics is the study of people. Yeah. That's interesting, actually, because what we're seeing in the data, what they decided to do, what, what each individual person is a data point and what they chose to do in response to whatever, advertising, the price, the promotion and so on. 
And I guess what, what's interesting about the behavioural science is it starts to explain maybe the underlying reasons why psychologically they respond to that change in price. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. That it, that kind of puts those two things together. One shows what and the other shows maybe why and, and, and then how you can learn from both. Now, that makes sense as well. You've rebranded recently, haven't you? Which must have been a fun exercise. I love your new branding, by the way, and congratulations on the website. It's a great, it's a wonderful place and uh, it really explains what you do very well. So well done. Where did, why did you Thank want you. to do that and what did you, what did you learn through the process? I guess one thing that I really learned through the process, bear in mind, I've been in marketing for more than 20 years and this was, this is, branding is a part of marketing and I thought I knew what kind of branding is and what it's all about and I thought I thought I was on top of it and I think I really learned quite a lot about what it really is that sounds really funny but for example that feeling of actually having to put your own money on the Mm, line to do it it really does focus the mind first of all and then there's also some things everything that I've known about brands is I guess how consumers react to them how customers react to them and that's something that obviously we're quite often contracted to find out how do people react to brands and and new brands in 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 advertising and so on but what was really interesting as well is that branding is not just for consumers (laughs) I found out I just realised that it's actually for the business yeah. itself. And there was a, a real, a lot of navel gazing a little bit, uh, soul searching as to, and research as well, as to, to what is it that we do well? What is it that customers need? What is it that the competitors are not doing? And therefore, what is our unique place in, in this marketplace? And actually, it's been really useful in terms of we've actually turned clients down since we've rebranded and had new positioning interesting Mm. is is that because you've got too much demand or because you think actually that's not quite what we do because both but mostly for the point of this story anyway the latter (laughs) which is that really there are some things that that we don't Mm. want to do because it's not in line with our positioning and this is an example where a client that that we knew really well wanted to go to having lots of models updated every month and just in a dashboard on their desk and we said that's not really what we do because it it doesn't involve the people part we we're not sure that it will change that much of how you make decisions month to month and actually our people the people that that work for me don't really want to be turning the handle on on a machine they want to be thinking about businesses and working with people and bringing about change and that's what we hired them for and that's the type of people we hired and so it can branding and positioning it is a a really powerful tool for things that go on behind the scenes as well as as how consumers react to it makes complete sense I mean, we, we were laughing what we before before coming on air about uh, some of the the things you agonize over when you do branding as well and people outside just go oh that's nice and then you think oh, do you know how long I agonized over that color <laughs> that font you know <laughs> so, was, like, when I came up with a, a little tiny I know when it's yours you just feel that little connection but when I came up with a little brand for this podcast I remember I, I just flicked through all the podcast firstly marketing podcasts are mostly boring right because I, I did my research into the market before I launched mine and went oh man it's a bit dry the content and it looks a bit flat and it's it's I won't name names but I I wasn't really excited by any of it so I thought I must have a color that stands out and I must have a point a tone of voice as well so I, I just flicked through my my little podcast selection and thought where am I going to stop what's catching my eye and it was basically yellow I worked out was the color that just something like glowing about it just made it stand out so I said to Colin my designer I said it has to be yellow and I, for some reason, I just decided it's going to be Sex Pistols. I don't know why I wanted to bring a bit of rock and roll. So I had God Save the Queen as my idea. So I said, dear Colin, right, I want me kind of Sex Pistols look and feel and a bit of yellow. And uh, I think I even invented a new a new font. because Do you remember, I think we're similar age, aren't we? Do you remember when um, you had that ticker tape stuff when you were a kid and you'd put a sticker in your pencil case and it would be like, it's like a gun and you'd twist it round and you'd turn it to the letter and it would bang and bang and it would, it would chunk out on this strip. I can't remember what those are called. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Anyway, so I was describing this to Colin and saying, you know, those are little guns and you'd get a thing. That's the font I want. So he created this font to mimic that sort of ticker tape thing you used to get. Was it Dymo? Anyway, so... Basically, anyway, so that that bit, he did it in like 45 minutes. He literally came back and said, there you go. Oh, anyway, and then he said, we need to do a headshot of you like to go on there. And, and that we spent hours. I was like literally a prima donna going, oh, should I, should I look up in the air? 
Should I look mean? Do I look thoughtful? Should I look serious? Shall I smile? And then, and I, I don't, the po- literally, I think he was about to give up because he was like, John, here's your 60th photo looking out the window or something. <laughs> you know, just like, so the, the core brand was like done in no time. And then the flipping, how, you know, how I was posing. I'm sure no one looks at that and thinks, oh, yeah, no, I can see John's looking just up and away very precisely. No, but the overall effect is good. And it is different to the other marketing podcasts and it does stand out. And, and it's important, I think, because I think if you're going to do a podcast about marketing, we're going to do anything that's about marketing and you're going to market it, the marketing better be... <laughs> no disrespect to anybody else and my competitors, of course, but I just look at, we're talking about emotion, we're talking about engagement, we're talking about advertising and positioning and you've got a flat bit of graphics with a name on it. I'm like, come on, try harder. Anyway, so I've now, I've now upset somebody out there. I think the same is true, funnily enough. When we did our competitor review of econometrics agencies, they're not great at marketing and all of their websites are blue and white and they talk about complicated things. You're going to nail it because you've got a cool brand, you've made it simple and you're talking about people and it's like a breath of fresh air, honestly. The, the other thing is like, why does everyone who works in technology have to have a blue logo? Because I, I was doing... um. Uh, it's a few weeks ago, I was doing a little update at, at System One about some of the customers we're working with, and I thought I'd do a focus on tech. So I just did in my little update, I downloaded all the customers' tech in the tech space who work with their logos. They were all blue. Literally, I had I can't, 10 or 12 of them, all of them blue. You just you go through yeah. the list, you like name anybody, and I just think, so maybe if you're a tech company, you should be pink. I, I, I just think being right. a pink tech company, well, in fact, System One is actually, yeah. But being a pink <laughs> tech company is immediately differentiating and noticeable. Yeah, especially if you're, I'm getting a bit older, you can see I'm wearing glasses now, but when I haven't got my glasses on my phone, all the blue round logos look exactly yeah, the same to me. I can't tell which one's which. I just want the different colour. And colour was something we, we really thought about because you're right, tech is often blue and data is always yeah. blue and why, why? is that yeah. and i suppose it's i suppose it's because people think it seems authoritative or something but so what one of the things we really started with with the branding even before we'd done any positioning or anything and this was the wrong way around but it shall not yeah. be blue was, was like statement yeah. <laughs> one on the brief let's get on to uh, let's get on to some serious things i wanted to ask you about traditional versus modern i don't know if i frame this in the right way but you know of course any good students been listening to ritson and will know that things don't really change as much as we think and everyone else is going that was yesterday it's tomorrow and now everyone's on digital sort of thing and i, I know as a marketing director myself the amount of debate you have, we're going to be a modern marketing brand, which means we're not going to do TV and we're going to put all our spend on digital. And, you know, and then you see, you read about brands that move their money one way and move it the other way and, and all this kind of thing. The, the answer is probably, you know, probably in the middle. But from an econometric perspective, what can you tell us about the effectiveness of different channels and what might be described as the traditional, what historically what we've used versus more of the modern channels are opening up now and what's your sort of view on on that i've got lots of views on this i i I knew you would you see i thought (laughs) i've come to the right place and obviously this is a question that we look at over and over again for lots of you must do yeah you must have the main questions Absolutely. And the the really frustrating thing is that the studies are all all happen behind that non-disclosure agreement. So there's a, a body of learning happening that never talks to each other and never gets put back into the public domain. And so I'm at the moment working with the IPA to and building a community of econometricians to actually get results from econometrics projects make them we have to be because of confidentiality we we can't name names of who they are but put them all into one big database and see what we can learn from it not just award winners but everyday campaigns from the marketing front lines and one of the really key questions that I want to tackle with this database and it's the reason why I started on it really because there's this story isn't there that effectiveness of advertising is generally on the decline and that part of the reason for that is that people have moved their money into digital and direct response and that might be the problem or there might be the creativity might not be so strong because people are doing all these digital executions instead of proper creatives on posters and tv and I just really want to dig into that to see first of all has is my is effectiveness generally on the decline and if it is where is it on the decline is it on the decline most in the categories that have done a lot of digital or is it is it 
on the decline when people have done more investment into digital rather than versus what they did before. And that, I think, is one way to tackle the question you're mm. asking. I want to bring more evidence to this question. But what we've learned from individual econometric studies, the ones that I've seen and that I know really, is that actually, obviously, a mix is the best thing, usually. The broader reach channels, when they're done at the same time as things like search and social they can work really well together. Mm. So it's not one or the other. There's an interaction effect or a synergy between the two is one thing. And the other thing is that I think it really depends on the life stage of the business concerned. Smaller businesses, the starting point really ought to be these digital channels are search social reason being is that actually the advent of the internet and this new way of, of reaching people made dis- direct response marketing much cheaper it's yeah. still cheaper to put a social or a search ad out there than it is to send a dm which was what you would have do- done yeah for a direct response in the olden days if you've got a, a newish business and you, there's a pool of people out there that want it the, the obvious thing to do is to put it in front of them yeah and until that runs out of steam, actually, some of these things are the, are the best, most effective, most cost-effective things to do. To mm. try to this do. is a good point because like, if, if you're a founder or a startup, you have no choice but to make sure your primary media, so in other words, your packaging, your website, your interaction with the existing customers, that has to work. If that doesn't work, you're going nowhere. The, yeah. there, aren't, there are some actually, but there aren't that many that just go day one, TV, boom you see occasionally occasionally, but usually it's where there's a gold rush going on isn't there where it's a new category and everyone's flooding like the 118 when they had the phone line thing or maybe compare the market when that became a thing so occasionally you see that but mostly you don't mostly you've got seven eight ten years before anything really broadcasts and it's almost i've always wondered about the correlation actually is that is it that big brands but is it that big brands can afford to do broadcast or is it that they're big because they've done more broad? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's the chicken and the egg kind of thing, isn't it? In the relationship. But there's no doubt as a small, you know, as a small brand, you've got to nail those those digital channels first. You don't have the luxury of doing a full mix from day one, do you? So that must be a big part of it. No, I've been um, involved in a project with Thinkbox recently, which is all about the moment when people first go on TV and what stops you doing it before that and what are the blockers for the trigger for it and talking to scale-ups and startups. And it's just so interesting to hear the way they talk because those people speak really differently to CMOs in, in, in say, Diageo mm. or the big companies. And the things they say are, we got 300k worth of VC funding in our Series B and if we put 100k of it onto any type of media, we have to have the response to that and it has to be good and it has to be straight away because otherwise we are literally going to run out of money. Yeah. And by the way, the investors want to be involved and yeah. they want to know. And the, so the decision process is, is really different to what it is in a big company where someone's gone, here's your 10 million pound mm, marketing budget, mm. you spend it how you think. And then the decision process is an allocation of that money across channels. It's really, and, and particularly in e-commerce businesses, I've heard so many stories of the day when we first went on TV, we were all like huddled around the dashboards. Yeah. Like waiting to watch the yeah. num- that, that line on the dashboard go up. And if it didn't, that's an absolute disaster. And it rarely does because, of course, it, brand building takes time. It's a long term investment. It, it, all the things right. we know. Now, I've been there. I've been exactly there. You're absolutely right. I've been in the startup where you have nothing and it's you've just got to create your own PR yeah. in the extreme, in extreme. So, in fact, you reminded me of... Um, I remember blessing Byron Sharp came to the present. In fact, he presented his book when he just launched first time out and did How Brands Grow. I was working at Britvic at the time and I was working on in the innovation department. So I was launching uh, seed brands, as we call it, with very little money. I, I had not a lot of money. And I remember saying to him, okay, I, I get what you're saying, but what do you do if you don't have any money? And he just said, well, if I have a pound, I would spend it. I'd still spend it on broadcast media. And I thought, you know, if I had a pound... I would go and place a bet. <laughs> I would just go and place a bet. And everyone would talk about this crazy bet I was placing. And I'd get everyone to talk mm-hmm. about me rather than because if you buy one, I don't know, one poster or whatever you can afford for your pounds, you're just not going to get anywhere. It's just not, it's not an effective use of yeah. money. And what makes you effective in a startup 
a scale up and as mature brand are, are quite really different. different. And I, I think that's where I think sometimes you look at the hero charts that get shared around. You go, okay, get that in that situation. But if I was a startup, I'm not sure I'd be going, here's my TV, here's my out of home, here's my digital, and it's all happening together sort of thing. And, and I think that's really interesting because, and it's not just it's not just startups that can get years and years of growth from scaling up short-term direct response channels and not doing broadcast and not doing the lovely kind of tv ads that you guys look at look at system one and there are businesses out there that that grow for a long time that way and that that boundary of run out of steam doing doing direct response is a long way off it's not just these tiny startups i think that my my hypothesis is is an artificial separation between brand and activation in people's heads Mm -hmm. and I, i think so having done quite a few challenger brands I've built all, lots of brand equity without doing brand building, quote unquote, mm-hmm. because what you in the packaging, what you read about in the press, what you get fed on your social media feed all builds up to your impression and understanding and awareness of the brand. So this idea that the brand building only happens when you're on TV is in itself, I think, a bit of a misnomer and vice versa as well. Your brand building helps your activation become better and more familiar and recognizable as well. So I think sometimes we have this artificial separation between what is activation or performance marketing and what is what is brand building. I think it's a lot more overlapping than maybe the charts look. But let's come on to that because you wrote an article, didn't you, quite recently called the right. No, it wasn't the right and the wrong of it. Let me get this right. The wrong and the real. That's right. The wrong and the real, didn't you? Because, of course, the very famous, uh, as now famous. Well, I have to say, actually, sorry, small diversion. As a client-side CMO, I had not come across that chart until about three years ago. And it's really interesting because talking to planners and agencies and people like that, they roll their eyes when you mention it. Go, oh, yeah, we all know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's quite interesting because it's one of those bubbles, I think, that actually in, in the broader marketing landscape, we're not as familiar necessarily with the thinking as maybe people in the in, in the kind of advertising community are. Anyway, sorry, slight by yeah. the by on that one, but it yeah. tremendously helpful actually because one of the biggest tensions I've faced is the whole the first thing to get cut when a company is in trouble is always the above the line investment, the long term brand building investment. Because of course, when you've got quarterly results to report to the city, you've got people's dividends dependent or bonus dependent on hitting a number that's always the bit that gets sacrificed whereas the sales director who's pumping ridiculous amounts of money into discounts gets a free pass kind of thing so what i think that did originally is really help frame the importance of both things happening and frame it over it it took the time horizon beyond the normal planning horizon because of course people plan either in quarters or years and if you keep planning in quarters or years, you'll always go, well, activation beats brand building, obviously. And so what happens is you just repeat this, well, obviously we'll do activation beats brand building. And then what you end up doing is you'll end up filling up the activation bucket until it overflows and you haven't got any more to go. Whereas, of course, as we know, the effects cumulative. Anyway, sorry, long, long way of asking you the question. But what, what inspired you to re-look at that long and short of it and, uh, and reflect what the data you were seeing was telling you? There's two answers to that. Underlyingly, it was a lot of different conversations that I had had with CMOs over the years and marketing directors. And quite often at the beginning of an econometrics project, the question is how much brand versus how much act- activation. And because that work was was so valuable and it has permeated and it's got through to quite a lot of people in marketing people that question has become important and quite rightly I think but what happens in individual organizations is that they'll see the work that Les and Peter have done and they'll say oh 60 40 60 brand 40 activation and then they'll go but hang on is that right for my category is that right for my business? Or is that right for this point in time? Should it be different? And that the, those debates that we were talking about earlier on that kind of sometimes econometrics can be the deal breaker and, and, and yes. the, the, the resolution for debates, that is a debate that gets kicked around inside organisations at great, great length. And the work that's out there in the public domain isn't enough to allow people to answer it. And I felt that the, there wasn't enough in that in 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 what's in the public domain about it and that it's that, that there needed to be more and i did think and, and, and I, I had worked with lots of different e-commerce businesses as well and that's really a kind of area that we focus on and it, it was clear to me that actually you can get growth 
from scaling up activation in some types of businesses at some points in time and so actually that 60 40 every, every all the time everywhere wasn't really right so that that was what was in my head there's a sort of funny story where tom roach had written his piece on this and he sent it to me to read and and, and say what do you think and i, I wrote him an email back and said i think your piece is really good but it's not the one i would have written oh, i would have written it. this one <laughs> good keep him on his toes and he like went it. yeah and he just went well go on then oh i like <laughs> I it <laughs> go on then write it i'm right behind you i'm right behind you by the way go on you you, you go what was the reaction from because you les presumably don't you as well what's, mm. what's his take on it absolutely sent it to les in advance of it going live and he said oh i think it's fine i think what you did is you gave more nuance to it right and i think sometimes that's helpful because there's an oversimplification which is very helpful to land the principle and of course we that it's gold dust to most marketers to land that principle because it's one of the battles you're always having is like oh geez my budget's cut again and the sales director keeps on spending i mean that that kind of push me pull me in happens in every single marketing department so that chart really did give some license i think to have a conversation and just to go hang on a second right that there is a good mix here there is a good balance here now of course i think what you help to do is go these things also relate to each other the the more you build brand the better your activation and so on like that so i i think it helps It, it added some really helpful nuances that are important and to acknowledge that not it doesn't operate uniformly in every situation right if you're a startup versus scale up versus a mature brand it's going to be it will be different some categories respond more to activation some less some are e-commerce companies some are cpg all those things that they they all make a difference and that's probably the crikey what i hear a lot is of course when you talk to anybody they go yeah i get that john but it's a bit different in luxury goods or oh it's a bit of course everyone thinks they're they've got a unique scenario but of course it did reflect that it isn't there isn't a uniform answer always i really believe that it does depend what's the right thing to do for marketing effectiveness it depends is the answer there is no blanket answer to that and it is different in different circumstances my vision for us as a marketing community is that there ought to be a bit more of a theory of what it depends on Mm. and yes long and the short there's a truth at the heart of it there really is and I totally acknowledge that but there are nuances around it and it's not that yes sometimes it's it's what Les says and sometimes it's not it's sometimes it's Les, what Les says when this and this and then sometimes it's something else when this and this and I, I think we need to move forward in terms of learning from marketing effectiveness studies and evaluations to have a bit more of a, of a knowledge as an industry mm. about what it depends on so that there are times so if you're a marketing director that doesn't have an econometrics budget or that there's still some things to look at that are, that are, are evidenced i so. think you should write the book it depends i think would be great as, as a, but we need to we also <laughs> need to train ourselves to accept that it depends is a good answer because I think the problem is our instinct is always to the easiest. In terms of behavioural science, we always gravitate to the easiest answer, don't we? We like easy answers. Mm-hmm. We like shorthands. We like things that come to mind quickly, which is part of the success of the long and the short of it because it, it brands that whole dis- a very complicated discussion that's full of nuances and scenarios into a very simple thing. So I, we, we need to rebrand It Depends as being the right thing to do as well, to go, ah, the smart people in the room are going to, it depends. Retrain ourselves. Yeah, a sort of step-by-step. Step. Well, if I'm this kind of brand, it's like this. And if I'm that kind of brand, it's like that. And if it's this kind of year, it's like this. And if it's that kind of year, it's like that. It is a useful way yeah. of thinking, I think. And not everybody does it. I think it's really important, isn't it? Really important. The thing I notice as well on social media of course it is how everything is reduced to black and white isn't it it's this and you're like of course it's not just that it's also this or it can in some sense and and, and, and nuance generally in society seems to have have gone out the window a long time ago so i think it depends is a brilliant way of putting it yes it depends come on because actually it depends is quite important i noticed actually sorry slight diversion i i saw one of your posts on international women's day which i thought was quite interesting and you i think 90 percent of my feed was going pay inequality pay gap bang the drum and then you got you got this thing which is i think if i get this right so tell me if i've remembered this wrongly but i think you showed that actually the pay gap is a parental gap is it or a maternal gap and that's yeah. i thought that, wow i thought that was really interesting because suddenly you can then well a you're dealing with facts but also it depends it, you know as a woman versus a man it depends on if you're 
taking time off to have children. That depends a lot, actually. It makes a big difference. And then, of course, you can, once you know it, what it depends on, you can actually answer the question and go, what do we do about it? Well, the right thing to do about it is, let's get some good maternity and paternity kind of support going on and we'll solve this thing together rather than just bang the drum and without any kind of, without the right data to support it. Anyway, yeah. sorry, complete aside, but you reminded me of how we use the data. Yeah, I, I think it's important. It's, it's one of the things in terms of that you see in people's posts and people's blogs and things is that quite often there's a lot of mm. there's opinions, but there's not a bit of evidence with it. And one thing I do try to do is just put evidence next to the kind of things I'm talking about. And you're right that when you look at the evidence, you do see. And that one, so it's... I don't rant about it on social as much as I do to my team who get bored by it. But the, the narrative around women in data is an example of this, is trying to help, but it's maybe saying the wrong things because you quite often get these sort of assertiveness training classes where women get sent to, to speak up for yourself and be assertive about the pay rise that you want. Yeah, because women are le- less good at being assertive. And and if they were a bit more like men and a bit more assertive, then this whole thing would get sorted. And it's like, well, that kind of gives you the narrative that it's women's fault. B, that, that women should be more like men, which I don't agree with either of those. But C, that actually we then don't have to change the parental <laughs> policies, which are the only things that can really matter. And I think it's I just I think it's so important. When we had our second child, Connor, my little boy, my husband took time off work to do the kind of not maternity yeah. leave but paternity leave and his company gave six months of paid maternity leave to women oh. but not to men and it's not just yeah. women that are losing out it's fathers yeah. and children losing out because society set up that only women can yeah can do that job when actually not really and kids do 100%. need their dads i do i felt the same actually i listened to tony sewell the commissioner of the the chairman of the doing the race, government's race report and of course i read the reaction to it but I thought I want to listen to him explain it. And he had this phrase, which I, I admired actually. He said, we let the evidence take us where the evidence was gonna take us. And he kept on saying, he kept on saying, we went with the evidence and not any presupposition, hypothesis or, or and so on. And some of the, where the evidence led him was really quite amazing. And some quite shocking conclusions in the report, in a good sense, and even how, how they were suggesting not arresting people for certain possession of certain drug types and and anyway I won't go and explain but the way he explained how that was connected to spirals of violence and stop and search and all these kind of things but it was really interesting that by going where the evidence went the conclusion was quite different to what the superficial conclusion most people were expecting was going to be and I thought yeah it's important to do that otherwise we get driven by the external narrative. We get driven by the narrative, don't we? Or the pressure groups or whatever's going on rather than the evidence. And your maternity point yeah. is, I thought was just super. Let's, let's talk about search as well, because this is one that really intrigues me. I mean, obviously, Google have transformed our worlds in ways that is just unimaginable 10 years ago, isn't it? Search, wow, you know, what you can access via a simple typing into Google is just absolutely astonishing. But something, and I don't, I wanted to ask you about this because the data well. Sponsored search has always struck me as slightly curious because whenever I, if I, I'm just speaking in terms of how I use it, but if I search for something and you get the sponsored ad at the top and then you get the, the company you're looking for at the bottom. Now, maybe it's just me being a bit naughty. I always scroll down from the sponsored bit and click on the thing because I would have gone there anyway and I think hang on a minute it's a bit naughty to someone's going to get some commission you know someone it's going to it's going to get attributed that I only found this company magic numbers I only discovered magic numbers thanks to the sponsored search thing rather than actually I knew what I wanted and that's why I typed magic numbers into the search engine so what's the truth of kind of sponsored search and attribution and is it because i've heard stories of people taking it away entirely and getting the same search traffic what's the scoop on this it depends but what we see in econometrics models and bearing in mind that most of the experience from econometrics models and and this is not just the ones we do but across the industry is that branded paid search is not doing much of a job if any on bringing incremental sales so sales that wouldn't have come otherwise and whereas other types of advertising like tv out of home facebook youtube are bringing sales that wouldn't have come otherwise and that's really interesting in itself and it's really important and just bear in mind though that these are these are metric studies are all covering quite big brands 
So you mostly don't pay for Econometrics unless you've already had a TV True. ad or you've yeah. got something, mm-hmm. some certain amount of brand. And so these are companies that already have, they're, they're probably quite high in the organic rankings. So actually in your example, if you put their name in and you scroll down, the organic one would be there quite soon. It, it was, wouldn't be yeah. two or three pages yeah. down. Sometimes that, that is... That is for those types of brands for those big companies that have got a brand already it's not really doing much of a job for incremental sales and actually some clever people nowadays are writing scripts in their bidding algorithms to say don't serve my ad if I'm at the top of the organic listings. Don't put that branded paid search there. So that that's one of the things that that's happening, and and, and some people are really good, you know, better than me at that kind of tech. Good but idea. you know those kind of tools are starting to come on online. No, it might not. Search, branded search might not be bringing sales that wouldn't have come otherwise. They can still be doing an important job. So they can be doing a signposting job, and that signposting job is really important. For example, if your competitor is bidding on your brand name you have to be there next to them or that's some people believe and in some cases that feels like it needs to be done another thing is that a branded paid search ad controls the landing page in a way that organic search doesn't so you can and 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 that the increase in conversion rate by landing somebody in the right place can be enough to offset the cost of the ad Mm. Uh, branded paid search is one of the cheaper types of search and also if you're a newer brand say you're bloom and wild for example what about if somebody puts bloom and wild in and the first thing they see is interflora or mns and your brand is not as strong so someone's going to go oh i'm not sure whether who will actually deliver but interflora and mns definitely will deliver it properly and the flowers won't be bashed up so with that case then is there more advantage for bloom and wild to be doing the search than than interflora so being a less well-known brand do you get more benefit by being at the yeah. top. Those kind of uh, startup scale up audience find it very difficult to not buy a paid search, particularly if they're for their own brand name, because otherwise, in the first page of Google, when people put their brand name in, they just see a much more established competitor that's at the top of the organic ran- ranking, mm. and that's what they click on. So it's easing and defending sales that were already going to happen even though it's not actually mm. driving new sales. So it's complicated, but that said, I really do believe that there are a lot of brands that are paying way too much or spending way too much on it. I'm sure. And didn't you demonstrate as well that, you, didn't you survey some people to look at if the price went up, would they still do it sort of thing? And which indicated a monopoly, didn't it? In terms of monopolistic behavior of price goes up and demands not impacted sort of thing. Yeah, I guess that that's a sort of wider question about search search in in general on Google including generic terms as well and I guess the question there is and and this is something that court cases are looking at Mm. is does Google have a monopoly and does it have monopoly power and the test economists would use is to say if Google put their prices up would everybody be able to leave and do something else instead or would they have to tolerate the price rise and stay there and I think one thing is very clear is that within search Google has the monopoly so Bing search and those others are just so tiny yeah. they're, they're not a clear competitor they're clearly not a strong competitor to google so then the question becomes well does google ads compete with other types of ads social or tv or a poster and that is a very vexed question and mm. it's hard to know and it's a data question in the end and, and i don't claim to know the answer as yet but in that survey you'll have seen I, I put it on linkedin and 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 twitter and just ask so all the marketing people i know if google put their prices up what would you do and yep. a very small proportion said buy, buy social or out of home or something else instead it was a really small proportion mm. because and, and my sense is that's because search does do a, a different job to those other channels. It's that signposting job. It's defending and, and easing existing sales rather than, or at least most of the time or some of the time, rather than investing into future sales by, by stoking up demand and bringing sales that wouldn't otherwise have happened. Yeah, makes complete sense. And, and another, of course, positive, I think you shone a light on a positive use of search is, is as a research tool as well, isn't it? Which I thought was quite interesting, is the amount, the wealth of data we now have available to us in terms yeah. of understanding our brand, understanding why people do what they do, which is fascinating. So t- tell me a bit more about the use of searches as an insight tool that maybe people don't use enough of. It's clear, isn't it? It's every time you, I'm thinking about buying something, what do I do? I go right into Google and I yeah. want this thing. And that data is harnessable. You can get hold of it and you can see 
what people are putting in. It's, it's, it's one massive mirror on humanity, isn't it? In terms of what are we thinking about? And what we want to buy and what we want to do. I think of it of is a, a, a really detailed picture of demand, as economists would say, of, of what's out there. And when people search, they don't know yet what is available to them. That's part of what they're there to find out. So the supply side is not in it yet. And anything you might find from analysing search can be changed by what the price was when they found out or, or, or what the delivery options were when they found out. So the supply side still needs to be factored in and it needs to be included alongside this analysis of the demand side from uh-huh. search. But it, it's still useful. Yeah, so, so interesting because of course the idea of a share of search being a proxy for your brand market size was quite interesting, wasn't it? And the question it really threw up to me in looking at the analysis of cars, I, I probably search for Ferraris quite a lot. I probably don't buy many Ferrari or any Ferraris sort of thing. Going back to it depends. Surely there's an it depends caveat, isn't there, to share a search? Being a yeah. proxy for share of market? Yeah, I, I worry about it as a proxy for share of market. I, I'm not desperately keen on it in that to, to be used that way. And there are case studies where it does correlate, but we look at this kind of data a lot and there are a lot of case studies that we've seen where it doesn't correlate and it's, mm. it's, that relationship isn't there. So mm. it, it's there's not enough knowledge about what types of markets does it correlate for and what types of markets does it not but my hunch is where a market is very demand-led if you want it you can get it then it will share of search will equate to share of market but where supply side factors are really important then it won't so you know that's my hypothesis but there is actually a share of search group at the ipa meeting to discuss such matters which oh, i'm a good. part of oh the grown-ups yeah. are going to solve this for us are they yeah we're this all getting good. in a room oh, <laughs> I'll, I'll watch out for the smoke coming out and share of search are we on are we off <laughs> what's, what's nice the, the good thing is of course is it's using data that's free and available which actually if you're a small brand and can't afford an expensive tracking project it, it might be a good proxy as long as the caveats of it depends i suppose yeah. it's going to be the key that's where thing. i think the use case is really strong because you can go off and do you do a load of groups and you do a load of interviews and you get a, a question you get some issues and then you put them to a quant questionnaire and you find out how many people think this or that about the issues actually you can find out that kind of the same conclusions from that you can find out by analyzing search data at half the speed and for a fraction of the cost and and that's what our demand pools product does and it's interesting though because if you write your own questionnaire you can say i want to know this or that whereas with the search data you can't tell it what you want to know but it tells you what the market thinks is important because there must be a science of misleading questions or biases that we have when we write questionnaires that actually we don't realize that we're actually influencing the answer whereas that is a mm. that's a pure mirror isn't it this is what people are looking for. listen i said we're going to end on this question because i wanted to ask you given your econometrics background and what you do every day what's the one thing that marketers should be thinking about that they're not currently thinking about right now i think it's all about how covid is finishing and what that means for people Mm. different groups and i know that's probably a really boring answer because everyone's been thinking about covid ever such a lot i've been looking forward to the party honestly i wrote a piece for shots or whatever early in the year and i just said it's going to be like the roaring 20s we're going to suddenly be let out of jail and we're all going to run around and celebrate and it's going to be great and the economy is going to boom and we're all going to realize that you know what we're much better together than we are online and all that kind of stuff and we're just going to we're just going to relax a little bit and not get our knickers in a twist but listen tell me the right answer so the right answer is that is true for some people and most people in marketing will be in that bucket where it will feel like that to us because we were able to work from home so Mm. our jobs weren't mucked up some people lost their jobs and I don't want to belittle that but the vast majority of marketing people have probably emerged from covid with money in the bank that they weren't able to spend and they feel richer actually so there's scope for a bit of a splurge and some for some categories and some businesses that are selling to that type of group they'll do really well and it will be roaring but there is this other group because the pandemic was more financially hard for people that were already low income Mm. or low wealth and and young people too those people work in the sectors that were shut down so if you think about a shop assistant or a waitress those those are the people who 
don't get didn't get paid that much in the first place and then their jobs have gone and those sectors are still under the cosh and they, there's been shutdowns of, of businesses so they won't bounce back to where they were before mm. and I think really the issue is to remember that group exists and just be really careful that you don't send a message treat yourself it's yeah. all over now to somebody that's really still suffering yeah no, that's top advice actually because the impact on the last year has not been evenly distributed in any sense that's very true and, and the exactly. recovery won't be evenly distributed either the one thing i've the one yeah. thing i've missed the government gets a hard time i think they've done an amazing job on the vaccines i love the eat out to help out thing last year rishi i thought jumped on the furlough furlough as a scheme has been amazing furlough's been very it successful. has hasn't it and i worry we've had this artificial comfort blanket we had to do it right there's no doubt we we needed furlough doesn't it i worry about that ending but the one thing i've missed actually i, mean, I don't know if either of us know the answer to this is i'm missing that plan to get us back to work and that sort of like we know the sectors or the socioeconomic groups that have suffered the most we're going to do a plan to get hospitality going again or to get retail on the high street going again that's the bit that's just i'm just as i see it myself that's what i worry about is we don't seem to have a plan we've had a plan to cope and get vaccinated we don't have a plan to make sure that the people that have been affected the most are the most also the most supported on the way out listen we've decided two things we're going to understand the economic impact of colors and we're going to solve the economy Mm -hmm. growth coming out of this to make sure it's evenly equitable evenly distributed just a, just a couple yeah of yeah exactly brilliant well, that's, that's a perfect place to end listen great it's been, been a real blast thank you so much and thoroughly enjoyed our conversation yeah me too it's been great cool thank you very much mm-hmm.